Good morning. I'm reading from Luke 12. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. <clears throat> and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it is. It will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus told his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even in Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today. And tomorrow will be thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Thank you, Jane. <clears throat> well, as with a lot of those readings, it's easier said than done. <laughs> I mean, not to worry about our lives, you know, not to store up in barns. I mean, you know, working your life out is just so difficult. And th this is the second uh, week in a series that we're doing on a theme of really choosing between, you know, the life force or forced life, making your life work, forced life, or just allowing it to happen. And I began last week just by mentioning that $64,000 question, do we make life happen or is there a greater order that we can allow to lead us, which is really what's being said in that reading. And I was saying that before you can answer that question, before you can answer it, you have to decide that key fact as to whether or not there is some sort of intelligent design that's going on. 
I know, you know, being here in a chapel and we bang on endlessly about spirituality and eternal wisdom and, and all that. I think it's, you know, we can assume that most of us here are signed up to the fact that there is some sort of intelligent design. But it, it is worth remembering that whatever that intelligence is and how it designs, all we can really be aware of is the fact that order exists. Everything else really is our own conjecture. I think that culture makes sense of that order through religion. Culture, different cultures with different religions, but culture makes sense of order through religion. And we make sense of it through what we make of the religion that we're involved in, whether we're believers, agnostics, or atheists. We're just trying to make sense of that order of what's going on. All of which still leaves us with the tricky problem of how we deal with the circumstances that occur in our lives. Now, a few weeks ago, when we were looking at the subject of order, I made the point that in reality, although the universe is ordered, you know, the stars are out there and, you know, sun comes up every day, although it's ordered, most of us experience our lives as being pretty chaotic. And the only place we can truly experience that fundamental order is within ourselves, to go within ourselves and touch that deep place inside us. And then we do find that sense of order. And therefore, we are the ones that can give order to, to the chaos around us in our lives, to not be the effect of really whatever comes our way, but to realize that this intelligent design really comes to us in the circumstances of our lives and asks us to bring order to those circumstances, to not worry, but to allow that order to rest in the fact that there is an order that we can experience in our hearts. To take the pain that we're given in our lives, this is what we're really asked to do in creating that order, to take the pain that we're given in our lives and to respond to it with love. To take that pain and respond to it with love. What we I've referred to as emotional photosynthesis. You know, to take whatever comes in our direction and transform it in ourselves and to give out love. And that's the purpose of us as a human being, being part of creation, being part of a creation that brings order, that reduces the emotional temperature. And the place of order is in our hearts. And by bringing our hearts to bear on situations, we transform them. And, you know, just in the old religious, uh, spiritual sense, we do that through practice. You know, without practice, you can't do that. Something comes in your direction and you just have to deal with it as quickly as you can. But if you do have a practice, literally taking that time every day to practice bringing order from our hearts to our minds and therefore eventually bringing order into our world, then we can make something of it. And I do you know, encourage you to have that sort of practice in your life because without that, you're just being blown from pillar to post. But even if we've got practice, even if we acknowledge all those things, we're still faced with the issue of knowing really when to act and when not to, when not to act. No matter how hard we try to be spiritual, we, we still have our two natures competing with us, our human nature and our divine nature. And somehow we have to decide when to act 
and when not to act. You know, I was, you know, that story of Van Gogh, you take these things too literally. Van Gogh, I don't know if you know, was a missionary. He went out to be a missionary to the Belgians. And he took that, those verses that Jane read very literally and ended up starving. His brother Theo had to come and rescue him. He had no money. He gave everything away. And he was in a, a state of abject deprivation. Of course, you know, that's not the way to live. See, there is a balance somewhere that we have to work out. We have to decide when to act and when not to act. And we have to do that on a big level. You know, do I go to college or not? Do I take this job? Do, do I go out with this person? Do I move to Aspen? You know, we're faced with those big decisions. And then we're faced with the small decisions. You know, do I stay an extra 10 minutes at the reception? There's coffee downstairs afterwards, by the way. <laughs> do I spend that extra 10 minutes at the reception? Or do I go for a hike now? Shall I have that extra hot dog? Shall I go to the film? Little decisions that we all make. And it's, it's really sobering, I think, to think that every decision you make bears on every other decision. You know, just waiting that extra five minutes at the reception can mean that you get into your car five minutes late. And as you turn out of the drive, you do not get hit by that car coming down Maroon Creek and killed. But instead, you miss that fate, not even knowing that it might have been a possibility. Our decision sets up the next decision, which in turn makes up your hour, then your day, and then your life. And, you know, we're always thinking about it all the time. How can we make any decision with confidence? You know, when you think about it too much, you just start to go mad. And events and circumstances, they just keep on coming. You know, you're, whatever it is, it just keeps coming at you every single day. And sometimes the pace of that is almost too much to bear. And at those times, you have to remember, you know, that it's not about us. It's not about you. Those five, we talked about the other day, those five points of initiation turns you from being a boy into a man or from a girl into a woman. You know, first of all, first point, life is hard. Second point, you are not important. Third point, your life is not about you. Fourth point, you're not in control. And fifth point, you're going to die. <laughs> Those are the things that keep us humble and enable us to remember that, you know, we're not in control. And that's such an important thing to remember. No matter how much we try to control, the same thing, and remember the word sane comes from the word, French word sanus, which means healthy. The healthy thing is to realize that we're not in control of our life and we're not in control of our circumstances. You know, in this series we set up the question, you know, life force or forced life. But in reality, there's no contest. No matter how much we try to force life in one direction or another, you're not in control. And people who think they are in control end up bonkers. Howard Hughes padding around his apartment on Kleenexes, trying not to get microbes in his body. I mean, you know, you can't control life. The life force is going to take you down whichever way you turn. You know, quite apart from the fact, as I said before, it's going to end badly for all of us. <laughs> Every moment pretty much is having its way with us. There's not a second 
we're in control, at least of our circumstances. So, so, you know, what can we say we're in control of? Our bodies. Well, no, they just rebel all the time. Illness, pain, weakness, puberty, menopause, death. We just live in them hoping that they're going to get us through. It's a big hope. You just don't want to go to the doctor. Our minds, you know, are we in control of our minds? You know, being spiritually minded and practice mindfulness, surely, you know, we're in control of that. You know, as Viktor Frankl, that quote says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. In that ability to choose our response lies in our growth and our career. And there is our control. And yet we all know that's totally temporary. You know, the fact of the matter is more than often than not, it all goes awry after about five minutes. You know, I'm going to choose my response here. And we choose our response and it still goes wrong after we've chosen it. So most of the time, you know, we're not in control, even when we think we are. But that's not to say we shouldn't try to make things work. You know, work the way that we want them to work. You know, we should. It's good to put food on the table. You know, Van Gogh was not acting properly, going, you know, becoming hungry and starving. You know, it's good to put food on the table. It's good to put a roof over our heads. It's good to put your kids through school. It's just that we shouldn't fool ourselves into ultimately thinking that we are in control. Even those who can make everything in the world go right still get brought up short. Look at Steve Jobs. So it's an important step of sanity to realize that you're not in control. You know, it's one of the basic steps of the 12-step program, you know, to realize that you're not in control. And in doing that, we begin to see our lives in their proper perspective. We begin to see the paradox of being in control, you know, trying to get things down, while realizing that we're not in control. And in that paradox is the question around life force or forced life. It's in that paradox. Because, of course, we have to get our stuff together. You know, we have to turn up on time. We have to get dressed. We have to cook meals. We have to pay the rent. You know, but in reality, there's something else going on. So how do we deal with that being out of controlness? How do we square that with the process of living? Well, obviously, it's in this place that we begin to look at, you know, how do we cooperate with that life force that seems to throw us about so outrageously? How do we cooperate? What are we cooperating with? That's the real question. We have to develop a sensitivity that's not looking to get into control, but one that enables us to be in balance while out of control. We have to develop a sensitivity that's not looking to get us in control, but one that can enable us to be in balance while out of control. You know, like turning into a skid in a car or leaning into the turn in your skis. We have to go with whatever's happening and realize that there's something deeper, as Gary will tell me, my skiing guru, gravity that is taking you in that direction. 
you know, that old thing, as I said, of God coming to us in the circumstance of our lives and asking us to relate to that divine presence rather than the circumstances. They come to us, but we have to relate something deeper in our lives. And there is an inner balance that we have to reach for that will contain those circumstances. The inner balance we have to reach for to contain the circumstances. That still point in a turning world, as T.S. Eliot calls it, a still point in a turning world. And we have to become that still point. That's the place in a storm, on a gyroscope, in a centrifuge. The only point that's not moving is the eye of the storm, the balance point of the gyroscope, the central point of the centrifuge. Be anywhere else and you're completely thrown around. We have to become the eye of the storm that is our lives. We have to become the eye of the storm. And to do that, we have to let go. We have to let go. We have to let go of our desire to control the outcomes in our lives. And we're always wanting to control those outcomes. And to focus on just being with what's going on. As it says in the Tao Te Ching, do your work, then step back. The only path to serenity. And he's talking, about, he's talking about the outcome there. Do your work, then step back. That is the only path to serenity. Our out-of-controlness is really a function of being attached to the outcomes in our life. And we, don't, we can't know where they're going. The first week I was here, two and a half years ago, I told the story of the Chinese farmer. And really, it is about outcomes. And, I, it, and just to tell it again, just to get the idea, it's about the Chinese farmer Chang was one horse. And one day, he gets up in the morning and finds that one horse has escaped from the paddock and has gone off into the mountains. And all his friends come and say, Chang, what bad luck? And Chang says, bad luck, good luck, who knows? Anyway, next week, Chang wakes up in the morning and looks out into his paddock and he sees that there are 20 wild horses in the paddock. And all his friends come and say, Chang, what good luck, how fantastic, all these horses. He says, Good luck, bad luck, who knows? And of course, you know, Chang had one son, and the son decides that following day that he's going to get on one of the horses, and he's going to break the horse. And of course, he gets on the horse, and he charges around the place. The horse throws him off, and he falls on the ground and breaks his leg in the most awful fashion. And all his friends come around, Chang says, oh, Chang, you're only son. You know, what bad luck? Good luck, bad luck, who knows? Anyway, the following week, the emperor declares war and all the army come round and they take out all the young sons from all the villages to go and fight in the war, except for one son, Chang's son, who's got a broken leg, so he can't go. We just don't know what's good luck and we don't know what's bad luck. We don't know what is going to happen in our lives. We think it's great that we've moved to Aspen. We think it's great, but we just don't know. When that truck is going to come, we have no idea. Our out-of-controlness, our out-of-controlness, we have to, we don't know what's good or bad. You know, the, story, the Adam and Eve story, you know, the tree they weren't supposed to eat the fruit of was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not supposed to know what's great and what's not good for us. It's just accepting what comes our way. By letting go of our attachment to the outcomes in our life, we suddenly become centered on what's actually going on and what's important. When we let go of the 
our attachment to the outcomes. Suddenly we don't have our eyes fixed on the so-called prize. Suddenly we have our eyes fixed on what we're doing for the sake of doing it. And at that moment we become in touch with who we really are, doing what, we, what we're doing. And in that moment in life, we're present. And suddenly you're in a new place. That is the still point, the presentness. And you're beginning to be in the moment with that life force rather than trying to force life. You're still conscious of what's going on. You're still paying the rent and putting the dinner on the table. But part of you realize that no matter what you're doing, there are other forces at play. Literally, there's the weather in your life. And we stay at the center of that weather. We stay at the point where we remain with that which is actually keeping us alive, our life force, as it negotiates its way through the life that is also its own making. And the doing of it literally is minute by minute, second by second, letting go. Yet we notice our fears. When's he going to end? <laughs> is he on his last page here? You know, we notice the fears we have in our lives. You know, that we'll run out of money. That our health will go. And we just have to let them go and come back to the present and recognize that there is something else at that center. Something else. There's a presentness that is unfolding in our lives, and we need to pay attention to that unfoldingness rather than trying to contain what's going on. And, you know, it does take practice. This is the advert for meditation. It does take practice. It takes sitting there and allowing things to happen, seeing our concern for our outcomes and letting them go and coming back to the present. In his book, um, The Perennial Philosophy, Aldous Huxley defines the perennial philosophy as the metaphysic that recognizes a divine reality substantial to the world of things and mind. So he, he says the, the perennial philosophy is the fact that there is a, um, a life force. There is intelligent design. And it's a psychology that finds in the soul, in ourselves, something similar to that, that divine force, that guiding force in our souls and it places man's final ending in the knowledge of that life force Aldous actually describes that in his book the perennial philosophy that that really there is something going on and you know our role in life is to be aware of that and the key thing is the psychology that finds something similar to that in our soul when we find that place at the eye of the storm then we find the still point in the turning world when we contacted that, when we're in contact with the point where the intelligent design is taking place, both within us and outside us, then we're at that still point. Because it's not merely within us, it's also at the same time out there, in those circumstances. It is both the eye of the storm and the storm itself. So we're actually becoming unified with that whole reality while we are entering that still point, that Remember Evelyn Anhill's definition of the mystic, which is a person who has attained union with reality to a lesser or greater degree, or believes that such an attainment can happen. When we achieve that balance, when we're unattached to the outcome, then we arrive at that still point. When we recognize and act on our lack of control, then we become a mystic. That's what it means. We become actively passive in the way that we run our lives. 
actively passive. That's the idea. And in a couple of weeks' time after the monks, I'm going to talk about what it means to be actively passive. Let's pray. And Lord, we do just uh, open our hearts to you and ask us to guide us to that still point. That we may know when to act, when not to act. We pray that of our politicians as well, those in leadership, that they may find that still point in their lives to know when to act and when not to act. And we pray for the turmoil and chaos that exists in the world at the moment. For those people living in war zones, in prison, in hospitals, in difficulty, in pain, in hunger, in illness. I pray especially for those from our own community who are not well at the moment. Think of Patricia Hill, of William Welsh, of Mabel MacDonald, Pat Smith, of Molly Coman, Barbara Orcutt, Anne Hollidge, Anne Hodges, Lee Brugge, the family of Valbrick Halberg, and Sharon Wells. Amen.